See, technology, Pat. We just love it. Yeah, exactly. It is another week and another edition of the Pat Richter Show right here at 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, ESPNWisconsin.com, and Wisconsin On Demand. How you doing, everybody? Hope you're having a great Saturday morning. Alex Strofe with you alongside the man and the legend, former UW Athletic Director, the great Pat Richter with me once again this week. Hi, Pat. You're a traveling man. How have you been? Oh, doing well, Alex. Glad to be home and uh, have a chance to chat with you and uh, cover some sports this week. Things have been kind of getting a little heated up, and so uh, a lot of good things to talk about. When you say things have been heated up, Pat, do you mean the 87-degree weather outside right now, or are you referring oh, to, uh, to all the playoffs happening? <laughs> I didn't mean that, but certainly you can tell it all. I just, I'm not a great one for hot weather. I get a little... Skin beat up, and so I've, I'm not really a key on that. But I think the 70s be fine with me. Yeah, 80s a little much, but I really shouldn't complain given the fact it was snowing two weeks ago. But uh, I, let me be the first to say, Pat, I think this is a very Wisconsin sentence. Uh, it's not the heat; it's the gosh darn humidity, right? <laughs> I think that's what exactly is that what the Wisconsinites exactly right. say? Yeah. So, um, so that's that's where I'm at with all of this. But it's been uh, quite the change outside. But but I gotta ask. So you were down in South Carolina, correct, for for a graduation that last week. That's why we didn't have a program last week. You were you were all over the place. Bring me into your world. What was going on last week? Yeah, we had our oldest son Scott as grandson Cole, and he was graduating from South Carolina and. Uh, so we flew down to Richmond, where Scott lives, and then drove down to South Carolina and uh, and uh, had a graduation and uh, sat there for three hours while everybody walked across the stage. You know, luckily it was indoors because they 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 say that that uh, Columbia is kind of the armpit of the South, and they talk about humidity down there. So Wisconsin has nothing on them about humidity. But uh, the one thing I wanted to mention is that. Uh, Titan Athletics, we had a little bit of time, so we kind of toured around the campus and things. And a very nice campus. And uh, and then we got down to the football operations uh, area and right near the stadium. And uh, and it was just uh, talk about impressive. And I guess I, it's been a while since I've been around any SEC conferences and, and facilities and things like this. And uh, they've got a huge... Uh, Steve Spurrier football, football, indoor football facility that just takes up about 100 yards. And then uh, right tied into that is a, another building just about the same size of football operations, football with the, the strength and conditioning and medical and everything else in there. And then tucked into that is they've got a couple of fields that are just as pristine as possibly can be. And it looked like it was playing uh, football on a golf course. It was so nice and well manicured. And it just, uh, you know, some of it has to do with, uh, I think, the weather. And not as tough on uh, facilities as it is around here. But, you know, just to have the, uh, the room and the space and the, and the uh, wherewithal to dedicate that space to football, it's big time. And then the football stadium, the same uh, situation, very, very modern uh, facility, and uh, it's just uh, very impressive. And you can see why the SEC has got a leg up when it comes to recruiting, and they've got a lot of things to show and show up shows well with uh, the facilities that they have. Now, you, South Carolina's capacity, about the same as Camp Randall, about 77,000, so a little bit less than Camp Randall, actually. But, I mean, as you, as you talk about all the facilities, Pat, 
Uh, what is the biggest difference, I guess, between between like a Big Ten facility like Wisconsin and an SEC facility like like South Carolina? I mean, is it a world's difference, much nicer because it's in the SEC, or is it pretty comparable? Well, I think it's a good point, and, and whether or not it has to do with the, the fan base and the, the demands and what they want to see from, from a, a rabid fan perspective and down south and uh, – whether it's Alabama, whether it's Southern or South Carolina, or the schools like that, or Arkansas, you know, they just seem to they seem to have a priority in that respect, and not that that's the right thing to do, but it just says they look at it a little differently. I mean, everything that you get in the Big Ten, I think, in most schools is kind of you know, hand to mouth, and even though they've got a great television package, it's just always a struggle, you know, getting uh, development. Uh, people that are interested in giving gifts and things like this, and it's a more modest uh, approach in terms of the Big Ten, just the Midwest values, and and you get down south, and you get whether it's Texas or Alabama or schools like that, uh, they just, you know, that's, whether it's entertainment or not, they just have a certain feel passion and, and, and craziness about it that they you know it's tailgate or maybe it's weather or whatever it might be it's just you can be outside most all the time in terms of all the games and uh it's uh you know you just got a little bit of peek under the tent you know and then that's uh kind of what they they kind of go after the rivalry of even though it's in the acc the clemson which is nearby in south carolina and so they've they be very very vocal about it and talk about it the competition and uh and the good old days when Steve Spurrier was down there but it's uh it's just a different way of looking at things and different priorities in terms of uh their athletics i mean they really go after it and uh and I think we see that in the playoffs and the, and the with Alabama and such and uh, I don't think we're going to see any change anytime soon. Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's uh, interesting to hear about your travels, Pat, and to, to hear, you know, obviously the environment down there in Columbia, South Carolina, where the Gamecocks play ball, but uh, very cool stuff there. But I, I want to dive into what came out earlier this week, Pat, because uh, we talked about it a little bit before, we, you know, we started going here this morning, and um, it's just, I still don't know what to make of it. It's been a few days. Uh, on Monday, the Division One Board of Directors directors issued name, image, and likeness guidance to member schools, and essentially, uh, what that you know regarded was the intersection between recruiting and the NIL environment. Right, so it's it's unique. I, it it doesn't make a ton of sense to me, to be real honest with you, Pat. But you're you're a heck of a lot smarter than I am, so you might be able to to shed some more light on it, but it seems as if it's, it's just trying to place rules about recruiting. Am I, am I getting that right? But it's it seems like they aren't banning anything. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's saying a lot of things that uh, people are wondering because certainly that takes a little bit of the attention away from the, what really is happening out there, and I think that's the bigger picture. And to say that the, you know, there's there's nothing to do with recruiting or trying to prevent it from recruiting is a little naive. I think that uh, that horse is out of the barn already. And uh, a couple of coaches that uh, more or less said that you know, the genie's out of the bottle now, and you, you, once you get it out, you can't get it back in very easy. And that's uh, that's the way it is. And I think this is probably, again, a, 
a little bit of the NCAA uh, trying again to come back, be, be reactive rather than proactive, and uh, because I think that uh, that has already occurred. And in fact, I read somewhere that they were kind of wondering who in the world this group was that was putting this together, whether it was at any any uh, any authority or not in terms of uh, the uh, the what they're trying to do and accomplish and money that they're paying out and things like this. And having them put the rules together doesn't really make a lot of sense because they're really wondering who, what kind of authority they have. And I think with that's a problem, then they're going to be really an issue in terms of uh, the rules and regulations. And I think it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction, kind of a half, half-baked uh, kind of attempt to set the rules and regulations of things that are really already happened. I mean, if in fact you look at that and read it literally, you could probably go to all the schools and maybe the schools out there and already say, well, there's already been violations. Well, we didn't know when people would be taking the the uh, stance that they didn't really know what the regulations were, aside from the fact that it's just common sense. You can't keep doing what you're doing and, uh, and basically enticing people to come to your school through a uh, an environment that really is kind of open open doors and uh, in terms of pay for whatever you want and uh, there's been some craziness out there that is uh, uh, I was with uh, Ron Dane the other day we were at the Madison Hall of Fame uh, luncheon and kind of had a little panel discussion there and Ron was talking about you know things that would have happened when he was coming out. He probably wouldn't even have played pro ball because the money there would have been so sufficient that it really kept him from going and staying in college as long as possible and uh, and benefiting from the the nil at that point in time. But you know, and down in Alabama, supposedly there's a quarterback who has not even played a down of football in the SEC that has got a, a package that's worth potentially about a million and a half dollars. And there's, he mentioned that there was a running back as well that's going to Alabama that is a, a potential deal for like uh, $4 million. Yeah. And so this is just really crazy. I mean, if you're saying this isn't, uh, doesn't mean anything in terms of an advantage, recruiting advantage, just have deals like that throw out there. And you can just imagine coming up and talking to someone in a recruiting scenario and saying, well, so and so got a million and a half, but you're you're so much better. I mean, you you got a chance of a couple million dollars. It's a question of which has come first, the cart or the horse, and uh, whether someone's going to come to the school and then you get a nil deal, or whether they come there because of it. I think is a little bit naive to think that they aren't keeping an eye on that and going where the money is. And just again, they like to say they they always said they just kind of follow the money, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept. And when you when you view, you know, some of those top recruits nationwide, like the ones you just mentioned, that's going to become an all-out bidding war. And apparently, you know, now it's looking like the NCAA is trying to step in in terms of boosters offering substantial compensation. But the, the, given the the stories you just referenced, Pat, you know, it seems like it's almost free agency, right? Like it almost seems like Okay, I'm going to go where the money takes me. And if I'm in, you know, an 18-year-old kid's shoes, that's probably what I'm valuing, right? Obviously, I want a good opportunity to showcase my skills to get to that next level. But if there's a $4 million incentive somewhere, which is, you know, and there's a $1.5 million incentive elsewhere, 
I'm going to go where the $4 million is. So it's it's almost free agency in a sense. And that that's where it bugs me, right? Like, we, we all are in agreement that this opportunity in terms of name image likeness for student athletes is a positive one, usually overall. We all advocated for it. But at this point, it's, it's gotten so far out of control, and now the NCAA is trying to step in too late. So is this a matter, Pat, in your opinion? Do, do you think this was just accepted and pushed through too quickly? We didn't think of all these uh, potential you know, boosters or, or opportunities or uh, you know, uh, compensation from, from outside of the building. So do you think it was like a, a thing of pushing it through too uh, quickly? Or is it just, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a free-for-all and this is how it should be? Well, that's, we've, got, we've got both of those things happening. Certainly, I think to push it fast. And that was probably due to the fact that the NCAA had dragged their heels so long, so long that it finally just the dam broke. And they said, hey, wait a minute, if you're not going to do anything, then Congress and other uh, state legislating uh, bodies stepped in and, and trying to take a swat at it. I mean, then once they get in the, into the fray, you know, they're just looking for a little bit of uh, publicity and, and good feelings to the state. They they did some things that enhances their their program in the state. They're going to get a little bit of a a boost from the, the supporters and legislative bodies and things like this. And so, I think the NCAA just dragged their heels too long. I mean, I, you can you can imagine maybe two or three years ago, had they talked in terms of what happened in the Alston case in the Supreme Court where they said that they could provide revenues to the students uh, based on certain levels of performance or whatever. And now every school is going to is taking the Alston case and is saying that, you know, they're having Alston monies, in other words, based on their performance in the academics. Now, I don't know whether there's any rules. That, I, mean, I, I assume not that there's any rule that says, well, you have to have a 3.7 grade average to get uh, any money at all? It's probably on, on a sliding scale, down at the point where you've got, you know, 2.0 C average uh, students that are gaining some monies that are based on academic performance. Now, if they had started that a couple of years ago, when there was a lot of talk started happening about, you know, getting money into the pocket of the student athletes and things like this. You know that would have made some sense, and, and it probably would have maybe forestalled a little bit just to see what the reaction was based on that, and see if that works, and then give it a chance to get ahead of it in terms of uh, you know, what was going to happen with respect to the outside world and the nil and things like this. They just let it go so far and let the courts take care of it, and then of course, then at that point you just lost all control and possible. So uh, it, it is, it is. It is going to be very, very hard to put their arms around this and put in the controls that once they've started this in terms of saying is it retroactive or you're going to, is the, uh, the the violation that's happening because of someone ahead of the game offering an incentive to come to school there, they find that out, and it's bound to. I mean, it's kind of the way it was happening with respect to schools that up to this point, there's a lot of things were happening in terms of you know, uh, doing things differently at different schools. And that's about the only policing you have is the fact that if somebody in the other school says this is not to the right and, and they blow the whistle on somebody, question is, blow the whistle on what basis and what's what's the uh, what's the rule of law, so to speak. So uh, I think we've got a real can of worms, and this is going to be a real messy in terms of 
whether or not they can put the, uh, some constraints on it and get it back where it should be. And and only people who probably can do that would be the, the chancellors and the presidents of the university in terms of you know banding together and getting and agreeing on something that makes sense. Rolling on on the Pat Richter Show here on your Saturday morning here on 100.5 ESPN. Alex Strofe, Pat Richter with you. I want to pivot a bit, Pat, over to the transfer portal. Kind of a similar issue, right? We've seen just more and more and more student-athletes uh, enter the, the the transfer portal, whether that be for – I mean, it's for a variety of reasons, right? Whether that be playing time, whether that be opportunity, whether that be for more NIL opportunity, right? I mean, we've seen so many different reasons as to why that happens. But it seems like the Badgers men's basketball team is, uh, is actually benefiting from it uh, a bit. Right, uh, so they've in the last couple of weeks they've added two in-state guys originally that went to other programs uh, and now have transferred to their home state school. That started with Kamari McGee, who's from Racine. He played last year at UW Green Bay, just up north a bit, and now transferring down here. And then it was announced earlier this week that the Badgers have added Wofford transfer Max Klesmit, who's originally from Nina, so another in-state guy. The Badgers did not recruit either of them super heavily out of high school, but now adding them through the transfer portal. Um, while these, I mean, because these are, are pretty minimal ads, I would say, right? Maybe not guys you expect to contribute a whole lot in year one with, with in their time with Wisconsin, but still additions nonetheless. This, like I said, this looks positive, but, you know, there's there's a lot different situations when it comes to the transfer portal, right, Pat? I mean, you look at college football, especially when it comes to the Alabamas and the Texases that you referenced a bit earlier in the show. Uh, it's, it's not as beneficial to the schools, um, you know, the other schools, rather, uh, as it is here for Wisconsin. So, uh, first off, let's just start with these moves. It's cool to see in-state kids coming to Wisconsin. Uh, but then secondly, I'd love to get your thoughts as it stands here mid-May uh, on where the transfer portal is at. Yeah, I think the part of the things that are happening here with Wisconsin basketball are maybe things for what it was really intended to be, and I think those are maybe positive certain circumstances because you, when you're recruiting in-state kids especially, you want to do the very best you can, but it's a big pool out there, and and many times uh, it's a question of how many scholarships you have and whether or not you can uh, reach out and, and touch somebody and bring them in versus uh, a scholarship at one place and what you can offer is maybe only a walk-on opportunity. And uh, and I think in that respect, you know, certainly it's not an exact science. I mean, there's some, you know, like Johnny Davis was a can't-miss type of a recruit. Others, not so much. And... Uh, and so when somebody comes in, you just don't know what that was a maybe a better environment for them. They were able to grow. They had certain kind of teachings and le- lessons learned at the school and things like this. And all of a sudden, they now you know, see that the, this is an opportunity to get back to uh, you know their home base. With one story, I think we read about Kleinsmith or whatever. The parents are now are much closer to seeing them play. You know that's certainly a valuable uh, situation to have, and and they were able to blossom. It would be interesting to see whether they can make this up to the Big Ten, and I think that the, obviously the the uh, coaches believe that they can help out from what we've got coming back next year, and you know maybe they're not going to be all stars or all Big Tens or whatever, but they're going to be able to contribute, 
and that we're at a point in time where that's the necessary uh, need of the team. But I think that this is uh, the transfer portal in general. You know, it's a one-time deal where they can, they can not have to sit out and make that transfer. I mean, it's just disrupting all the bases for recruiting and uh, this the team or togetherness, that sort of thing. When you're trying to introduce, uh, you know, a brand new player to the team, all of a sudden somebody's worked their tail off for three or four years at the school to get into a position to be a starter, and uh, now they get they're rewarded for their efforts and things like this. And all of a sudden, whoops, we got uh, Joe Jones coming in from uh, uh, Far East uh, Nebraska or more like this, and he's coming back home, and he's. Uh, going to take a spot to somebody that's worked very hard. And so those are issues are going to be a, a real problem, I think, in some respects. But it's also uh, going to create a, an opportunity for for recruitment. You know, when, when a portal opens up, it seems I saw an article, and they say, well, the transfer portal will open up and so-and-so called so-and-so. You know, those are things that, you know, when you know when you, what you knew when you knew it, that type of thing. And uh, and then they jump into it, and it's and it's going to be a, a constant recruiting process. Which is recruiting itself is a very difficult thing to do. But now coaches are going to be up, you know, 24/7. It's going to be recruit not only recruit them to get there the first time, it's going to recruit them to keep them there, and it's also going to be recruiting like everybody else is doing to get somebody to come to your place. So you, you're recruiting two or three different ways of doing it based on what you've had in the past. That you have to do it because you're going to be in a, in order to be kind of in, in in the mix, so to speak, and being competitive, you're going to have to do all those things. Yeah, well said. I, I think it's really you know just just interesting to see how it's evolved over the last few years, right? But uh, I still can't get past the fact, Pat. I think we've talked about this before. I, I, I don't know what the transfer portal is, right? And what I mean by that is, is it a website? Is it an app? Like, how, how do you, do, do you just talk to somebody and you're in the portal and then your phone rings? I mean, do you know the process of what, what it is exactly? <laughs> Not totally, but I think you're, you're hit on it. You've got to, you got to declare at a certain point and make it known to the NCAA that you're the transfer portal. I think it is probably more or less something like a, uh, like a library of uh, <laughs> all potential uh, athletes that are in the portal, and, and there's this period of time in which they, once they get into the portal, that then they're going to be recruited and things like that. And so, it has to have a formal process, and I think he has to notify his school. Obviously, that he wants to enter the transfer portal, and they probably do all the paperwork at that point in time. And it used to be that. For times in the past, you could you deny the ability to transfer and things like this. Well, that's kind of by the wayside. So now you have a chance to get in the portal yourself. And the question, of course, is 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 anybody going to call you and uh, and and make a move for you? And and in some respects, uh, that's uh, that's already determined beforehand. I mean, many times. They'll sort of test the transfer portal. They may make somebody may make a call to a school that's saying, "Well, he's interested in doing so and so. Do you think it's worthwhile for him to go to the portal?" So, at every step of the the process, there's going to be a potential, you know, violation if somebody goes out too soon to recruit somebody that aren't even in the portal officially, and and they're trying to get ahead because of their 
maybe think that they're the first one on the block that's saying, well, we'll we've got an opportunity for you, and if you go in the portal, you know, you come here, and once they do, if you're the only group that's that's after them, then uh, that's the only thing you can do. Otherwise, if in fact you got a couple, two or three schools that are after you, then uh, then you're probably getting what you want because then you have a chance to pick from where you want to be. Right. It's just uh, it's always been fascinating to me because I I don't think it's ever been spelled out exactly what the process is for a student athlete. Or I'm also curious from your perspective, right, as an athletic director, what what that would look like. Like, I wonder if, uh, you know, somebody wants to leave, let's just say, Wisconsin men's basketball. That was the reference earlier. You know, what's Chris McIntosh's side of things look like? Probably not him directly, but somebody in his camp, right? Is it is it a website? Are they entering info? You know, is there a website accessible for other D1 schools that want to see? You know, is, is there an Excel spreadsheet of available uh, people in the transfer portal? I've just always been curious as to exactly what that is, and I don't think it's ever really been spelled out. So, uh, Yeah, no, it would be uh, in, in terms of the – Numbers. I mean, you know, we talked before about like about seventeen hundred yeah. last year, and and th- these numbers are big and, and big time. And it's not just the people that have traditionally been the ones that have uh, uh, tried to make a move that they're not happy with their situation, didn't get a chance to to play, and they think they're better than maybe they are. And uh, and those are the ones that were in the, the mix before, and now it's going to be players of. You know, decided maybe they want to change the scenery. Would probably were going to this place beforehand, but they went to a different school, and and now they're going to try something different. And uh, you know, it's it's in some respects it's a broadening of your perspective of what's going on, and and uh, but it's going to create an awful lot of work at the other end in terms of uh, how many people are keeping track of the transfer portal, who's calling, what what's the need. You know, it's almost like you. You've got a uh, an order in saying, okay, I, I need a, a point guard, a six three, can go to his left, and uh, and his a three point shot shooter. You know, are all those things factored into a kind of a, a directory of who's available type of thing, and and then with you top put that on top of the uh, the nil situation, and then you got a real can of worms. Rolling on on the Pat Richter Show here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. Alex Drove, Pat Richter with you here on your Saturday morning. And, Pat, we're recording Wednesday, so we don't really know the exact results of, of Celtics Bucks. It could be over. We could be going to Game 7 tomorrow. But we're recording prior to Game Number 5, so the series deadlocked when you and I are chatting at two games apiece as it heads back to Boston. Uh, I, I, I guess I, I'll start with this. How much of the series have you watched, Pat? Because uh, it's been it's been you know decent game times, I guess, in this series. A little bit later in that Bulls series, it was like nine o'clock tip times, which was just bananas. They, they reeled it back here, but uh, how much of this series has had you pretty engaged? Because it's been a good one. Yeah, it really has, and I think that uh, it, what's, what's come out of this that most people didn't realize is, is how tough the sport is, and. Uh, you think of basketball, you don't think of being physical and things like this, but uh, I think with the way it's being played and uh, the size of the people being playing it, uh, it is a very, very difficult sport uh, physically. And uh, and I think you saw in the Bucks game the other night, which we watched, you know, and it still, it still comes down to the end. Uh, now it's been, I, I kidded the things in the regular season to come down to the last three minutes. Well, 
it's not that way necessarily now, but it's, it comes down to the last you know, quarter or so thereabouts because it swings. The other night when it went 15 points going the way, it went the other way, and, and, uh, and you, you have to keep attention to what's going to happen in the game all the way through it because it's amazing to me how the teams can get a 10-0 or 15-2 uh, point spread run yeah. at, the, at that level. You know, high school or something like that, you can see that happening when it's a dominating team, but these teams are so evenly matched, you said, gee, that's hard to do, and I think what happened, which changed the Bucks' prospects, I think, with regards to the, the Celtics series, is what Al, Al Forford did the other night. I mean, he was just incredible, and, and then after Giannis kind of dunked on him and uh, schooled him a little bit and did the taunting and gets a technical foul, and then all of a sudden that just lit a fire under Horford, and he was unbelievable. I mean, we hadn't even heard his name hardly mentioned in the, in the games up to that point in time, and and he was all world, and then he did the same thing to Giannis, which was really hard to do. And but you could just see the emotion there. I mean, he fired him up, and when he had a chance to kind of uh, obliterate him on a dunk and a three-point opportunity, he did. And that was it was probably it probably made uh, Giannis a little bit more uh, uh, well aggressive, I would say, from the standpoint of what do you think you might see coming out of the game today, which is on Wednesday when we're talking. And uh, we'll know when the show airs, but but I think that uh, that was an unusual thing that happened, and it was but it meant an awful lot, and it kind of fired the Celtics. But you know, when you without Middleton, you really don't have a go-to guy. Holiday was to be the guy after him getting, being injured, but uh, you know he had a number of shots that he just couldn't connect on, and you got to hit those things. I think there was some a stat that said that. Based on the shot selection, the Bucks had a 65% chance of winning the game because of that shot selection. But the problem is, the shot selection is only the first half. You get the shot selection, but you got to make the shot, and they didn't do that. And so, if they can make the shots, then they win the game. And so, it's uh, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what they do at home, and, and it's still. A, it's still in the thick of things, but it's going to be very difficult about Middleton because if Holiday doesn't click, you got to depend on some guys that are really not uh, not the normal guys that you would depend on, and it's going to be tough because the Celtics seem to be burning pretty hot right now. Yeah, that's a great point. And to your point on Al Horford, it seemed like that guy dove head first into the fountain of youth in Game Four. I mean, that that was a name, as you said, we hadn't heard really all series. And then he goes for a playoff career high, uh, leading the Celtics to a Game Four victory in Milwaukee. And you know, it is it is really been fun to watch, right? You know, just just the the complexity of the series kind of changed without Chris Middleton. And I think it was clear in in that game four loss for Milwaukee that they really do miss him. He he is their second offensive option when it comes to scoring the basketball. And uh, when Drew Holiday is shooting five of 22, uh, it makes it difficult to win basketball games. And the Celtics were rock solid in the fourth quarter. They they just smoked the Bucks in Game Four. So hopefully that's something they can adjust on and and, and respond to as World Champions. They know how to respond when they get when they get hit. So uh, excited to see what happens the remainder of this series if it's still going. Game Seven tomorrow when you're when you're hearing this on the radio dial. Um, so that that'll be uh, be fun to see. 
Uh, let's pivot to the Packers, Pat, because uh, the schedule release came out, and I think uh, uh, you know to to catch my eye. Not the entire thing as of recording, but it will be out by the time this airs. Uh, the two that that catch my eye are first off the the matchup in London for the Packers and the Giants uh, happening in October, and then Week Ten. Mike McCarthy will make his return to Lambeau Field as the Packers host the Cowboys in mid-November. So those are the two that, that caught my eye, Pat. Would love to hear your take on both the, uh, the, the London game as well as a McCarthy returning to Lambeau Field because I think it'll be a mixture of a standing ovation and booze, but who knows? You can never predict that stuff. Yeah, I think once uh, once somebody's left, uh, the Packer fans are pretty much uh, kind of forgiving, except for Favre when he came back with the Vikings. But uh, I think with Mike McCarthy, I think there was a pretty good uh, relationship there, and uh, spent a little bit of time, and he's worked his way back into the into the NFL, and uh, and I. But I think that the, the, there's always that question, and maybe people are looking at it and saying, "Well, has he better be able to maximize the?" Uh, the strength of the team that he has, and there's a question about that as well. And, and I think that uh, looking at it more from the standpoint, you get them at Green Bay, it's going to be, be ice ice bowl uh, connections and the comparisons and things like this. And uh, so, in that, in that regard, I think he's going to be. I think he'll be welcome back, and especially uh, uh, you know with, with the uh, team that he's got, with the Cowboys being as, as good supposedly as they are. Uh, and I think the question is the chances of Packers winning is are better in that regard. And so I don't know if he's uh, if he's uh, how he feels about coming back. I think it's kind of bittersweet because I think the feeling was that he when he was let go it was not uh, commensurate with the things that he had done there. And so I think in that regard he might feel a little bit awkward about it. And that's why people maybe. Would feel a little bit not sorry for him, but at least a little bit of an affinity because maybe it wasn't to handle the best way that he thought would be the way he would leave. And and so I think that one is uh, is going to be very interesting. The one in in, in uh, England is you know everybody gets excited about the fact that they're going to Europe and get a little enamored with that whole situation. But from a team perspective, I, I think there's some mixed emotions. I mean. It's, I don't know if you need the publicity, and, but the going through uh, such a long trip and and uh, trying to recover and things like this uh, is is you're kind of doing your duty for the NFL and uh, and they uh, they not necessarily volunteers, but they want to spread it around a bit. I think Packers probably of many teams uh, who've got the cachet that they've got international. I think the way that they sold the stock. Each of the stock sales in an international basis meant showed that there was a tremendous following the Packers had, and so I think that it's going to be against the Giants. It should be a game that they should win, and uh, but you never know when you have this such a long travel and the preparations are very important. And but I think that you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you got to look around the schedule. Who do you play before you go over there? Who do you play when you when you get back, and how much time you have to uh, get ready for the next game? Those are the important items, and uh, except it being exciting about playing in England and all that sort of thing, it's not so exciting for the players and their bodies and preparation. But uh, you have to do your diligence for the uh, for the NFL. 
Yeah, no doubt about it. So, Pat, that that leads me to this question because I don't think they were playing London games when you when you were in the NFL. What was the longest trip you had when, during your time in the NFL? Well, from Washington, the longest trip we had was out to the West Coast to play San Francisco. And uh, and you have to remember when we were playing, basically the Washington Redskins or Commanders now owned the whole east, east southern east coast, and uh, there was no teams there. There was was before Miami was a team. It was before Atlanta was a team, okay. Jacksonville. So they basically had that whole corridor was were Redskin fans in that in that respect, and uh, and so I think that uh, when the, uh, the Redskins were traveling across the coast, that was about as far as Dallas. We'd go every year. And then used to take some trains, and even with Philadelphia and New York. But the biggest one was taking a DC-6 out of uh, Washington uh, Reagan Airport to go to San Francisco, and then and that was as far as one. We didn't. We did play the LA Rams one time. That would be a comparable uh, distance, and that was right during when they had the Watts riots. And so that was interesting because we had to go into the stadium with a police escort, but you could hear. Mm-hmm gunshots in the distance so it made it for an interesting proposition but those are two farther close seattle wasn't in the mix at that point in time but uh that was it gotcha well interesting yeah not quite as as far as going to london but still still a little bit of a long trip from coast to coast there uh which is uh which is interesting. So yeah, I, I knew they didn't play in London back when you played, but I was I was curious uh, as to what that was. Uh, Pat, let's wrap up on the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, who are currently playing on Wednesday morning when we uh, when we're chatting. Uh, I just want to fill you in. I'm not sure if you're watching, but uh, the Cincinnati Reds, who currently as as we record have a record of six and twenty four. Uh, are up four to zero after the first inning over the Brewers. So there you go. But I will say the Brewers in good shape. Pat, uh, the, the big news from this week: uh, Josh Hader getting his 500th career strikeout, the second quickest uh, ever in terms of innings pitched to get to that mark, uh, behind oldest only Araldus Chapman. So not a bad list to be a part of there for for Josh Hader, who reached that mark on Tuesday night. Uh, he's been so good, and, and now for several years, Pat, it's been really cool to see him get to 500 strikeouts. It really is, and, and you know they've they've got they've got a number for everything, it's, uh, whether it's number of strikeouts or how many innings pitched, and with men on base or whatever it is, but uh, even last night when he let the first person uh, get on in terms of walk, you know, the thing with he was, you know, the Reds aren't the strongest team in the world, but the, you know, sometimes you have a tendency to not just slack off, but uh, just take it for granted. But, you know, the Moran uh, with the Reds, I mean, he's been as tough on the Brewers as anybody could be, and uh, and so, but Josh has done a great job, and I I don't know. They said he was tied with Lee Smith, another for, I guess, getting to uh, 12 saves in a row to start the season. I don't know if that's the, those are the high water marks or he's just passing them, but it would be nice to see him get another one. And there's a show that heretofore the Brewers have been uh, not known for the bad pitching, but now with Burns and Woodruff and the, the recent past and with the. the with uh, Devin and the bullpen and uh, and Hader in the bullpen and closer, you know they're they're starting to show that they've done a, a good eye for talent and done well and so we'll just take it as far as we can because you t- you never know how long you're going to have these guys and with Hader 
Uh, somebody would love to pick him up, but uh, as long as the Brewers are still in the mix at the end of the year, they'll keep him, and that's that's the important thing is is making sure that he thinks Milwaukee is a home for him, and uh, and uh, would likewise they pay him accordingly. Yeah, uh, totally. And the pitching staff has really come together well, as you mentioned, and it's been uh, it's been fun to see kind of that that in house development for the most part for for a lot of those guys. So uh, it's been important to to the success the last couple of years, and it seems like. They're they're growing steady and adding more arms that are that are competent, and reliable to the either the bullpen or that order every year. So, uh, been fun to see the the constant development there. But also the the hitting side of things hasn't been super sexy, I would say, this year. But but two guys have really popped out to me, Pat. That's uh, Willie Adamas and, and Rowdy Tellez, uh, two guys they bring back from last year. Uh, Willie leading uh, leading the team with eight home runs. Rowdy leading the team with a two forty five batting average here as we speak right now, and, and just behind Willie with with seven home runs on the year. Uh, those are two guys that have only been a brewer been Brewers for a few years now, but uh, certainly have been impressive, uh, at least in terms of Brewers, impressive to start this uh, to start this twenty twenty two campaign. Yeah, they are, and I think that they uh, you've got to hopefully. Get a couple of guys not necessarily on track, but better than what they've been, or maybe what they used to be. And in terms of uh, Yelich and uh, and Kane and uh, and uh, and Hero has been kind of an enigma, I think, in terms of you know Urias has done a, done a great job, but uh, Hero still seems to be struggling. At times he just crushed the ball, and other times he just doesn't know, sure he knows what he's doing up there, and so it. Uh, Get a couple of those guys on track, and that's a mold. Every time you're in a season like this, you're you're hoping that the guys that are kind of blossoming a little bit, like uh, Damas and uh, and Tellez, uh, continue to do what they're going to do, and the other guys catch up to them because they potentially have I mean, everybody in that lineup. Whether it's Taylor, whether it's Jace Peterson, uh, McCutcheon, uh, Wong, whoever it is. They all have the potential to be good hitters, and and when they're uh, all claim, climbing together in terms of uh, uh, hitting, there's nobody that's going to beat these guys. But you know, we have seen over the last couple of years, there always seems to be a lull in there somewhere where it's just very difficult to get a hit, and it just doesn't happen for the guys. And that's those are the the dog days of uh, the Brewers. When that happens, you don't win games. And so, but I think they got more players that uh, have the potential to. To pick the team up, and I think that's very important. And so Adamus, with his energy and excitement and, and uh, kind of a team composure, I think has really uh, done a great job. And I think he's a guy that was identified just like they've done. They've done a great job of identifying talent, getting with him, and McCutcheon as well, and Wong. And so uh, hopefully that will continue. And uh, everybody else is having the same problems. And so uh, it's not just one well, the Bucks or the Brewers are the only team that's having a problem because everybody goes through this, and that you know, how you weather that, how you come out through that stronger in long term, is making sure you get in the playoffs, where then you can regroup and do well in the playoffs, and then have a chance to go to the series. Yeah, every year they have a they have a stretch that's disappointing. They're not quite there yet, I don't think, Pat, but uh, it, it happens every year. But overall, right, they, they they've been controlling their own destiny, been leading the NL Central for most of the year, so. They're right in it, and that's all you ask for, right? I mean, that's uh, that, that that's just uh, what you need, and it's a long, long season. The MLB season is so, just got to stay healthy for the most part, and uh, I'm sure they'll be back in 
uh, the chase here as, as we lead up to October here. Uh, still five months away, but it'll fly by as it does each year. Yeah, I mean, if you respect the getting in the playoffs and things like this, I mean, that's the main thing. And, there's, you know, if you can shorten up the the gaps in terms of when you have a losing streak and things like that. Last year we got off to a big jump and got out in front and got a big big uh, lead on everybody, and we saw how that can dissipate real fast. And so don't have the luxury thus far, but hopefully they'll get on a run and stretch it out and get a – a little bit of a cushion in here because, uh, like you say, you need a little bit of insurance on those bad days because you know they're going to come. Everybody has them. It's just a question of how short you can make it and how successfully you can come out of it. Pat, I know you've still got your fastball, so I'll have my people talk to their people, and uh, we'll, we'll work out a 10-day contract for you if, in, in case they get in a pickle again this year. There you go. Uh, well, we'll be, <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> we're selective, but uh, I'm not sure if a 90-mile fastball is uh, something I'm kind of just to anymore. I'm, I, we never really knew how fast they were throwing, but 97 and 98, 99, that's pretty doggone fast. And yeah, that's true. If it's a bat, it's okay, but if it hits you in the noggin, you're kind of out of <laughs> circulation for a while. Well, worst case, Pat, I'll, I'll, I'll get you an extra Bernie Brewer suit. You can just go down the slide uh, every time a home run is hit. Maybe maybe that's There your... you go. That's, uh, they get a big, big Bernie gets work out of uh, this year <laughs> with Adamus especially. There you go. That'll do it for us this week on the Pat Richter Show. Pat, thanks as always. We'll do it again next week. Thank you, Alex. And if you missed any of our conversation, you can find it on Wisconsin on Demand or wherever you get your podcast. That'll do it. This has been the Pat Richter Show on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin on Demand. Pat Richter Show right here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, ESPNWisconsin.com, and Wisconsin on Demand. How you doing, everybody? Hope you're having a great Saturday morning. Alex Strofe with you alongside the man and the legend, former UW Athletic Director, the great Pat Richter with me once again this week. Hi, Pat. You're a traveling man. How have you been? Oh, doing well, Alex. Glad to be home and uh, have a chance to chat with you and uh, cover some sports this week. It's, things have been kind of getting a little heated up, and so uh, a lot of the good things to talk about. When you say things have been heated up, Pat, do you mean the 87-degree weather outside right now, or are you referring oh, to, uh, to all the playoffs happening? <laughs> I didn't mean that, but certainly you can tell it all. I just, I'm not a great one for hot weather. I get a little skin beat up, and so I've, I'm not really a key on that. But I think the 70s but fine with me. Yeah, 80s a little much, but I really shouldn't complain given the fact it was snowing two weeks ago, but... Uh, I, let me be the first to say, Pat, I think this is a very Wisconsin sentence. Uh, it's not the heat, it's the gosh darn humidity, right? <laughs> I think that's what, exactly. Isn't that what the Wisconsinites exactly right. say? Yeah, so um, so that's that's where I'm at with all of this. But it's been uh, quite the change outside. But, but i got to ask, so you were down in South Carolina, correct, for, for a graduation that last week. That's why we didn't have a program last week. You were, you were all over the place. Bring me into your world. What was going on last week? Yeah, we had our oldest son Scott as grandson Cole, and he was graduating from South Carolina, and uh, so we flew down to Richmond, where Scott lives, and then drove down to South Carolina, and uh, and uh, had a graduation, and uh, sat there for three hours while everybody walked across the stage. You know, luckily it was indoors because they 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 say that that uh, Columbia is kind of the armpit of the South, and they talk about the humidity down there, so. Wisconsin has nothing on them in the humidity, but uh, the one thing I wanted to mention is that uh, in athletics, we had a little bit of time, so we kind of toured around the campus and things, and a very nice campus, and 
and then we got down to the football operations uh, area and right near the stadium and uh, and it was just uh, talk about impressive and I guess I, it's been a while since I've been around any SEC conferences and and facilities and things like this and uh, they've got a huge Steve uh, Spurrier football football indoor football facility that just takes up about a hundred yards and then. Uh, Right tied into that is a another building just about the same size of football operations, football with the the strength and conditioning and medical and everything else in there, and then tucked into that is they've got a couple of fields that are just as pristine as possibly can be, and it looked like it was playing uh, football on a golf course it was so nice and well manicured, and it just uh, you know some of it has to do with. Uh, I think the weather is not as tough on the facilities as it is around here, but you know, just to have the uh, the room and the space and the and the uh, wherewithal to dedicate that space to football, it's big time. And then the football stadium, the same uh, situation, very very modern uh, facility, and uh, it's just uh, very impressive. And you can see why the SEC has got a leg up when it comes to recruiting, and they've got a lot of things to show and show up shows well with uh, the facilities that they have. Now, you, South Carolina's capacity, about the same as Camp Randall, about 77,000, so a little bit less than Camp Randall, actually. But, I mean, as you, as you talk about all the facilities, Pat, uh, what is the biggest difference, I guess, between between like a Big Ten facility like Wisconsin and an SEC facility like like South Carolina? I mean, is it a world's difference, much nicer because it's in the SEC, or is it pretty comparable? Well, I think it's a good point, and, and whether or not it has to do with the, the fan base and the, the demands and what they want to see from, from a, a rabid fan perspective, and down south and. Uh, whether it's Alabama or whether it's Southern or South Carolina or the schools like that or Arkansas, you know, they just seem to they seem to have a priority in that respect. And not that that's the right thing to do, but it just says they look at it a little differently. I mean, everything that you get in the Big Ten, I think, in most schools is kind of you know, hand to mouth. And even though they've got a great television package, it's just always a struggle, you know, getting uh, development. Uh, People that are interested in giving gifts and things like this, and it's a more modest uh, approach in terms of the Big Ten, just the Midwest values, and and you get down south, and you get uh, whether it's Texas or Alabama or schools like that, uh, they just you know that's, whether it's entertainment or not, they just have a certain feel passion and, and, and craziness about it that they. You know, it's tailgate, maybe it's weather or whatever it might be. It's just you can be outside most all the time in terms of all the games. And uh, it's, uh, you know, you just got a little bit of peek under the tent, you know, and then that's uh, kind of what they, they kind of go after the rivalry of, even though it's in the ACC, the Clemson, which is nearby in South Carolina. And so they've, they are very, very vocal about it and talk about it, the competition and uh, and the good old days when Steve Spurrier was down there. But it's uh, it's just a different way of looking at things and different priorities in terms of uh, their athletics. I mean, they really go after it, and, uh, and I think we see that in the playoffs and with Alabama and such. And uh, I don't think we're going to see any change anytime soon. 
Yeah, fair enough. Well, it's uh, interesting to hear about your travels, Pat, and to, to hear, you know, obviously the environment down there in Columbia, South Carolina, where the Gamecocks play ball, but uh, very cool stuff there. But I, I want to dive into what came out earlier this week, Pat, because uh, we talked about it a little bit before, we, you know, we started going here this morning, and um, it's just, I still don't know what to make of it. It's been a few days. Uh, on Monday, the Division One Board of Directors directors issued name, image, and likeness guidance to member schools, and essentially, uh, what that you know regarded was the intersection between recruiting and the NIL environment. Right, so it's it's unique. I, it, it it doesn't make a ton of sense to me, to be real honest with you, Pat. But you're you're a heck of a lot smarter than I am, so you might be able to shed some more light on it. But it seems as if it's it's just trying to place rules about recruiting. Am I, am I getting that right? But it's it seems like they aren't banning anything. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's it's saying a lot of things that uh, people are wondering because. Certainly that takes a little bit of the attention away from the, what really is happening out there, and I think that's the bigger picture. And to say that the, you know, there's, there's nothing to do with recruiting or trying to prevent it from recruiting is a little naive. I think that uh, that horse is out of the barn already. And uh, a couple of coaches that uh, more or less said that you know, the genie's out of the bottle now, and you, you, once you get it out, you can't get it back in very easy, and that's uh, that's the way it is. And I think... This is probably again a a little bit of the NCAA uh, trying again to come back, be be reactive rather than proactive, and uh, because I think that uh, that has already occurred. And in fact, I read somewhere that they were kind of wondering who in the world this group was that was putting this together, whether it was at any any uh, any authority or not in terms of uh, the uh, the what they're trying to do and accomplish and money they're paying out and things like this and having them put the rules together doesn't really make a lot of sense because they're really wondering who, what kind of authority they have and I think with that's a problem then they're going to be really an issue in terms of uh, the rules and regulations and I think it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction and kind of a half, half-baked uh, kind of attempt to set the rules and regulations of things that are really already happened. I mean, if in fact you look at that and read it literally, you could probably go with all the schools and maybe the schools out there and already say, well, there's already been violations. Well, we didn't know and people will be taking the the uh, stance that they didn't really know what the regulations were, aside from the fact that it's just common sense. You can't keep doing what you're doing and, uh, and basically enticing people to come to your school through a uh, an environment that really is kind of open open doors and uh, in terms of pay for whatever you want and uh, there's been some craziness out there that is uh, uh, I was with uh, Ron Dane the other day we were at the Madison Hall of Fame uh, luncheon and kind of had a little panel discussion there and Ron was talking about you know things that would have happened when he was coming out. He probably wouldn't even have played pro ball because the money there would have been so sufficient that really kept him from going and staying in college as long as possible and uh, and benefiting from the the nil at that point in time. But the, you know, and down in Alabama, 
supposedly there's a quarterback who has not even played a down of football in the SEC that has got a, a package that's worth potentially about a million and a half dollars. And there's, he mentioned that there was a running back as well that's going to Alabama that is a, a potential deal for like uh, $4 million. Yeah. And so this is just really crazy. I mean, if you're saying this isn't uh, doesn't mean anything in terms of an advantage, recruiting advantage, just have deals like that throw out there. And you can just imagine coming up and talking to someone in a recruiting scenario and saying, well, so-and-so got a million and a half, but you're, you're so much better. I mean, you've you got a chance of a couple million dollars. It's a question of which has come first, the cart or the horse, and uh, whether someone's going to come to the school and then you get a nil deal or whether they come there because of it, I think is a little bit naive to think that they aren't keeping an eye on that and going where the money is and just, again, they like to say they always said they just kind of follow the money, and that's what they're going to do. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept, and when you when you view you know some of those top recruits nationwide, like the ones you just mentioned, that's going to become an all-out bidding war. And apparently, you know, now it's looking like the NCAA is trying to step in in terms of boosters offering substantial compensation. But given the the stories you just referenced, Pat, you know, it seems like it's almost free agency, right? Like it almost seems like. Okay, I'm going to go where the money takes me. And if I'm in, you know, an 18 year old kid's shoes, that's probably what I'm valuing, right? Obviously, I want a good opportunity to showcase my skills to get to that next level. But if there's a four million dollar incentive somewhere, which is, you know, and there's a one and a half million dollar incentive elsewhere, I'm going to go where the four million dollars is. So it's it's almost free agency in a sense, and that that's where it bugs me right like we we all are in agreement that this opportunity in terms of name image likeness for student athletes is a positive one usually overall we all advocated for it but at this point it's it's gotten so far out of control and now the ncaa is trying to step in too late so is this a matter pad in your opinion Do, do you think this was just accepted and pushed through too quickly we didn't think of all these uh, potential, you know, boosters or, or opportunities or, uh, you know, uh, compensation from, from outside of the building. So do you think it was like a, a thing of pushing it through too uh, quickly? Or is it just, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a free-for-all and this is how it should be? Well, that's, we've, got, we've got both of those things happening. Certainly, I think they push it fast. And that was probably due to the fact that the NCAA had dragged their heels so long so long that it finally just the dam broke and they said, hey, wait a minute, if you're not going to do anything, then Congress and other uh, state legislating uh, bodies stepped in and, and trying to take a swat at it. I mean, once they get in the, into the fray, you know, they're just looking for a little bit of uh, publicity and and good feelings to the state. They, went, they did some things that enhances their, their program in the state. They're going to get a little bit of a a boost from the, the supporters and legislative bodies and things like this. And so I think the NCAA just dragged their heels too long. I mean, I, you can you can imagine maybe two or three years ago, had they talked in terms of what happened in the Alston case in the Supreme Court, where they said that they could provide revenues to the students uh, based on certain levels of performance or whatever. And now every school is going to is taking the Alston case and is saying you know, they're having Alston monies, in other words, based on their performance in the academics. Now, I don't know whether there's any rules, I, mean, I, I assume it's not, that there's any rule that says, 
well, you have to have a 3.7 rate average to get uh, any money at all. It's probably on, on a sliding scale down at the point where you've got, you know, 2.0 C average uh, students that are gaining some monies that are based on academic performance. So if they had started that a couple of years ago, when there was a lot of talk started happening about, you know, getting money into the pocket of the student athletes and things like this, you know, that would have made some sense, and, and it probably would have maybe forestalled a little bit just to see what the reaction was based on that and see if that works and then give it a chance to get ahead of it in terms of uh, you know, what was going to happen with respect to the outside world and the nil and things like this. They just let it go so far and let the courts take care of it, and then, of course, then at that point you just lost all control and possible. So uh, it, it is... It is it is going to be very, very hard to put their arms around this and cut, put in the controls that once they've started this in terms of saying there's a retroactive or you're going to, is the, uh, the, the violation that's happening because of someone ahead of the game offering an incentive to come to school there, they find that out, and it's bound to. I mean, it's kind of the way it was happening with respect to schools that uh, up to this point, there's a lot of things were happening in terms of you know, uh, doing things differently at different schools. And that's about the only policing you have is the fact that if somebody in the other school says this is not the right and then they blow the whistle on somebody. question is, blow the whistle on what basis and what's, what's, the, uh, what's the rule of law, so to speak. So uh, I think we've got a real can of worms, and this is going to be a real messy in terms of whether or not they can put the, uh, some constraints on it and get it back where it should be. And and only people who probably can do that would be the you know, chancellors and the presidents of the university in terms of, you know, banding together and getting and agreeing on something that makes sense. Rolling on on the Pat Richter Show here on your Saturday morning here on 100.5 ESPN. Alex Strofe, Pat Richter with you. I, I want to pivot a bit, Pat, over to the transfer portal. Kind of a similar issue, right? We've seen just more and more and more student-athletes uh, enter the, the the transfer portal, whether that be for I mean, it's for a variety of reasons, right? Whether that be playing time, whether that be opportunity, whether that be for more NIL opportunity, right? I mean, we've seen so many different reasons as to why that happens, but it seems like the Badgers men's basketball team is uh, is actually benefiting from it uh, a bit, right? Uh, so they've in the last couple of weeks they've added two in-state guys originally that went to other programs. Uh, and now have transferred to their home state school. That started with Kamari McGee, who's from Racine. He played last year at UW-Green Bay, just up north a bit, and now transferring down here. And then it was announced earlier this week that the Badgers have added Wofford transfer Max Klesmet, who's originally from Nina, so another in-state guy. The Badgers did not recruit either of them super heavily out of high school, but now adding them through the transfer portal. Um, while these, I mean, because these are, are pretty minimal ads, I would say, right? Maybe not guys you expect to contribute a whole lot in year one with, with in their time with Wisconsin, but still additions nonetheless. This, like I said, this looks positive, but you know, there's there's a lot different situations when it comes to the transfer portal, right, Pat? I mean, you look at college football, especially when it comes to the Alabamas and the Texases that you referenced a bit earlier in the show. Uh, it's it's not as beneficial to the schools, um, you know, the other schools rather, uh, as it is here for Wisconsin. So uh, first off, let's just start with these moves. It's cool to see in-state kids coming to Wisconsin. 
but then secondly, I'd love to get your thoughts as it stands here mid-May uh, on where the transfer portal is at. Yeah, I think the part of the things that are happening here at Wisconsin basketball are maybe things for what it was really intended to be, and I think those are maybe positive certain circumstances because you, when you're recruiting in-state kids especially, you want to do the very best you can, but it's a big pool out there, and and many times uh, it's a question of how many scholarships you have and whether or not you can uh, reach out and, and touch somebody and bring them in versus uh, a scholarship at one place and what you can offer is maybe only a walk-on opportunity. And uh, and I think in that respect, you know, certainly it's not an exact science. I mean, there's some, you know, like Johnny Davis was a can't-miss type of a recruit. Others, not so much. And... Uh, and so when somebody comes in, you just don't know what that was a, maybe a better environment for them. They were able to grow. They had certain kind of teachings and le- lessons learned at the school and things like this. And all of a sudden, they now you know, see that the, this is an opportunity to get back to uh, you know their home base. With one story, I think we read about Kleinsmith or whatever. The parents are now are much closer to seeing them play. You know that's certainly a valuable uh, situation to have, and and they were able to blossom. It would be interesting to see whether they can make this step to the Big Ten, and I think that the, obviously the, the uh, coaches believe that they can help out for what we've got coming back next year, and you know maybe they're not going to be all stars or all Big Tens or whatever, but they're going to be able to contribute, and we're at a point in time where that's the necessary uh, need of the team. But I think that this is uh, the transfer portal in general. You know, it's a one-time deal where they can, they can not have to sit out and make that transfer. I mean, it's just disrupting all the bases for recruiting and uh, this the team or togetherness, that sort of thing. When you're trying to introduce, uh, you know, a brand new player to the team, all of a sudden somebody's worked their tail off for three or four years at the school to get into a position to be a starter and uh, now they get they're rewarded for their efforts and things like this and all of a sudden whoops you got uh, Joey Jones coming in from uh, uh far east uh, Nebraska or something like this and he's coming back home and he's uh, going to take a spot to somebody that's worked very hard and so those are the issues are going to be a, a real problem I think in some respects but it's also uh, going to create an opportunity for for recruitment you know, when when a portal opens up, it seems I saw an article. And they say, well, when the transfer portal open up, and so and so called so and so. You know, those are things that you know when you know when you, what you knew when you knew it, that type of thing. And uh, and then they jump into it, and it's and it's going to be a, a constant recruiting process, which is recruiting itself is a very difficult thing to do. But now coaches are going to be up. You know, 24/7. It's going to be recruit not only recruit them to get there the first time. It's going to recruit them to keep them there, and it's also going to be recruiting like everybody else is doing to get somebody to come to your place. So you're recruiting two or three different ways of doing it based on what you've had in the past. That you have to do it because you're going to be in the in order to be kind of in in, in the mix, so to speak, and being competitive. You're going to have to do all those things. Yeah, well said. I, I think it's really. You know, just just interesting to see how it's evolved over the last few years, right? But uh, I still can't get past the fact, Pat. I think we've talked about this before. 
I, I, I don't know what the transfer portal is, right? And what I mean by that is, is it a website? Is it an app? Like, how, how do you, do, do you just talk to somebody and you're in the portal and then your phone rings? I mean, do you know the process of what, what it is exactly? <laughs> Not totally, but I think you were, you were hit on it. You've got to, you got to declare at a certain point and make it known to the NCAA that you're the transfer portal. I think it is probably more or less something like a, uh, like a library of uh, <laughs> all potential uh, athletes that are in the portal, and, and there's this period of time in which they, once they get into the portal, that then they're going to be recruited and things like that. And so it has to have a formal process, and I think he has to notify his school, obviously, that he wants to enter the transfer portal, and they probably do all the paperwork at that point in time. And it used to be that for times in the past, you could you deny the ability to transfer and things like this. Well, that's kind of by the wayside, so now you have a chance to get in the portal yourself. And the question, of course, is, is, is anybody going to call you? And, uh, and and make a move for you, and, and in some respects, uh, that's uh, that's already determined beforehand. I mean, many times they'll t- sort of test the transfer portal. They may make somebody may make a call to a school and saying, "Well, he's interested in doing so and so. Do you think it's worthwhile for him to go to the portal?" So, at every step of the, of the, the process, there's going to be a potential. You know, a violation if somebody goes out too soon to recruit somebody that aren't even in the portal officially, and and they're trying to get ahead because then they're maybe think that they're the first one on the block that's saying, well, we'll f- we've got an opportunity for you, and if you go in the portal, you know, you come here, and once they do, if you're the only group that's uh, that's after them, then uh, that's the only thing you can do. Otherwise, if in fact you got a couple. Two or three schools that are after you, then uh, then you're probably getting what you want because then you have a chance to pick from where you want to be. Right. It's just uh, it's always been fascinating to me because I I don't think it's ever been spelled out exactly what the process is for a student athlete. Or I'm also curious from your perspective, right, as an athletic director, what what that would look like. Like I wonder if uh, you know somebody wants to leave, let's just say Wisconsin men's basketball. That was the reference earlier. You know, what's Chris McIntosh's side of things look like? Probably not him directly, but somebody in his camp, right? Is it is it a website? Are they entering info? You know, is there a website accessible for other D1 schools that want to see? You know, is, is there an Excel spreadsheet of available uh, people in the transfer portal? I've just always been curious as to exactly what that is, and I don't think it's ever really been spelled out. So, uh, yeah, no, it would be uh, in, in terms of the. Numbers. I mean, you know, we talked before like about seventeen hundred yeah. last year, and and th- these numbers are big and, and big time. And it's not just the people that have traditionally been the ones that have uh, uh, tried to make a move that they're not happy with their situation, didn't get a chance to to play, and they think they're better than maybe they are. And uh, and those are the ones that were in the, the mix before, and now it's going to be players of. You know, decided maybe they want to change the scenery. Would probably were going to this place beforehand, but they went to a different school, and and now they're going to try something different. And uh, you know, it's it's in some respects it's a broadening of your perspective of what's going on, and and uh, but it's going to create an awful lot of work at the other end in terms of uh, how many people are keeping track of the transfer portal, who's calling, what what's the need. You know, it's almost like you. You've got a uh, an order and saying, okay, I, I need a, 
a point guard is six three, can go to his left and uh, and hits a three point shot shooter. You know, all those things factored into a kind of a, a directory of who's available type of thing. And and then with the top, put that on top of the uh, the nil situation, and then you got a real can of worms. Rolling on on the Pat Richter Show here on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin On Demand. Alex Strofe, Pat Richter with you here on your Saturday morning. And, Pat, we're recording Wednesday, so we don't really know the exact results of, of Celtics-Bucks. It could be over. We could be going to Game 7 tomorrow. But we're recording prior to Game Number 5, so the series deadlocked when you and I are chatting at, at two games apiece as it heads back to Boston. Uh, I, I, I guess I, I'll start with this. How much of the series have you watched, Pat? Because uh, it's been it's been you know decent game times i guess in this series a little bit later in that bulls series it was like nine o'clock tip times which was just bananas they've reeled it back here but uh how much of this series has had you pretty engaged because it's been a good one it really has and i think that uh what's what's come out of this that most people didn't realize is is how tough the sport is and uh you think of basketball you don't think of being physical and things like this but uh I think with the way it's being played and uh, the size of the people being playing it, uh, it is a very, very difficult sport uh, physically. And uh, and I think you saw in the Bucks game the other night, which we watched, you know, it still it still comes down to the end. Uh, now it's and I, I kidded the things in the regular season to come down to the last three minutes. Well, it's not that way necessarily now, but it's, it comes down to the last you know quarter or so thereabouts because it can swings. The other night, when it went 15 points one the way, it went the other way, and and uh, and you you have to keep attention to what's going to happen in the game all the way through it because it's amazing to me how the teams can get a 10-0 or 15-2 uh, point spread run yeah. at the at that level in you know, high school or something like that. You can see that happening when it's a dominating team, but these teams are so evenly matched. You said, gee, that's hard to do, and. I think what happened, which changed the Bucks' prospects, I think, with regards to the, the Celtics series, is what Al, Al Forford did the other night. I mean, he was just incredible. And and then after Giannis dunked on him and uh, schooled him a little bit and did the taunting and gets a technical foul, and then all of a sudden that just lit a fire under Horford, and he was unbelievable. I mean, we hadn't even heard his name hardly mentioned in in the games up to that point in time, and and he was all world, and then he did the same thing to Giannis, which was really hard to do. And but you could just see the emotion there. I mean, he fired him up, and when he had a chance to kind of uh, obliterate him on a dunk and a three-point opportunity, he did. And that was it was probably it probably made uh, Giannis a little bit more uh, uh, well aggressive, I would say, from the standpoint of what do you think you might see coming out of the game today, which is on Wednesday when we're talking. And uh, we'll know when the show airs, but but I think that uh, that was an unusual thing that happened, and it was but it meant an awful lot, and it kind of fired the Celtics. But you know, when you out without Middleton, you really don't have a go-to guy. Holiday was to be the guy after him getting, being injured, but uh, you know he had a number of shots that he just couldn't connect on, and you got to hit those things. I think there was some a stat that said that. Based on the shot selection, the Bucks had a 65% chance of winning the game. 
because of that shot selection. But the problem is the shot selection is only the first half. You get the shot selection, but you got to make the shot, and they didn't do that. And so if they can make the shots, then they win the game. And so it's uh, it's going to be uh, interesting to see what they do at home. And, and it's, still, it's still in the thick of things, but it's going to be very difficult about Middleton because if your holiday doesn't click, you got to depend on some guys that are really not uh, not the normal guys that you would depend on, and it's going to be tough because the Celtics seem to be burning pretty hot right now. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and to your point on Al Horford, it seemed like that guy dove headfirst into the fountain of youth in Game 4. I mean, that, that was a name, as you said, we hadn't heard really all series, and then he goes for a playoff career high, uh, leading uh, the Celtics to a Game 4 victory in Milwaukee. And, you know, it is it is really been fun to watch, right? You know, just, just the the complexity of the series kind of changed without Chris Middleton. I, and I think it, it was clear in, the, in, in that Game 4 loss for Milwaukee that they really do miss him. He, he is their second offensive option when it comes to scoring the basketball. And uh, when Drew Holiday is shooting 5 of 22, uh, it makes it difficult to win basketball games. And the Celtics were rock solid in the fourth quarter. They, they just smoked the Bucks in game four. So hopefully that's something they can adjust on and, and, and respond to as world champions. They know how to respond when they get, when they get hit. So uh, excited to see what happens the remainder of this series. If it's still going, game seven tomorrow when you're, when you're hearing this on the radio dial. Um, so that, that'll be, uh, be fun to see uh, let's pivot to the Packers Pat because uh, the schedule release came out and I think uh, uh, you know to to catch my eye not the entire thing as of recording but it will be out by the time this airs uh, the two that that catch my eye are first off the the matchup in London for the Packers and the Giants uh, happening in October and then week 10 Mike McCarthy will make his return to Lambeau Field as the Packers host the Cowboys in mid November. So those are the two that that caught my eye. Pat would love to hear your take on both the uh, the, the London game as well as a McCarthy returning to Lambeau Field because I think it'll be a mixture of a standing ovation and booze. But who knows? You can never predict that stuff. Yeah, I think once uh, once somebody's left, uh, the Packer fans are pretty much sort of kind of forgiving, except for Favre when he came back with the Vikings. But uh, I think with Mike McCarthy, I think there was a pretty good relationship there, and uh, spent a little bit of time. And he's worked his way back into the into the NFL, and uh, and I. But I think that the, the, there's always that question, and maybe people are looking at it and saying, "Well, has he better be able to maximize the uh, the strength of the team that he has?" And there's a question about that as well. And and I think that. Uh, Looking at it more from the standpoint, you get them at Green Bay. It's going to be ice ice bowl uh, connections and the comparisons and things like this. And uh, so, in that, in that regard, I think he's going to be. I think he'll be welcome back, and especially uh, uh, you know with, with the uh, team that he's got, with the Cowboys being as, as good supposedly as they are. Uh, and I think the question is the chance of Packers winning is are better. In that regard, and so I don't know if he's uh, if he's uh, how he feels about coming back. I think it's kind of bittersweet because I think the feeling was that he, when he was let go, it was not uh, commensurate with the things that he had done there. And so I think in that regard, he might feel a little bit awkward about it. And that's why people maybe would feel 
a little bit not sorry for him, but at least a little bit of an affinity because maybe it wasn't to handle the best way that he thought would be the way he would leave. And, and so I think that one is uh, is going to be very interesting. The one in in, in uh, England is, you know, everybody gets excited about the fact that they're going to Europe and get a little enamored with that whole situation. But from a team perspective, I, I think there's some mixed emotions. I mean, it's, I don't know if you need the publicity, and, but the going to uh, such a long trip and and uh, trying to recover and things like this uh, is is you're kind of you're doing your duty for the NFL and uh, and they uh, they not necessarily volunteers, but they want to spread it around a bit. I think Packers probably of many teams uh, who got the cachet that they've got international. I think the way that they sold the stock. Each of the stock sales in an international basis meant showed that there was a tremendous following the Packers had, and so I think that it's going to be against the Giants. It should be a game that they should win, and uh, but you never know when you have this such a long travel and the preparations are very important. And but I think that you know, it's it's one of those things where you, you got to look around this guy. Who do you play before you go over there? And who do you play when you when you get back, and how much time you have to uh, get ready for the next game? Those are the important items, and uh, except it being exciting about playing in England and all that sort of thing, it's not so exciting for the players on their bodies and preparation. But uh, you have to do your diligence for the uh, for the NFL. Yeah, no doubt about it. So, Pat, that that leads me to this question because I don't think they were playing London games when you when you were in the NFL. What was the longest trip you had when, during your time in the NFL? Well, from Washington, the longest trip we had was out to the West Coast to play San Francisco. And uh, and you have to remember, when we were playing, basically the Washington Redskins, or commanders now, owned the whole east, east southern east coast. And uh, there was no teams there. There was, was before Miami was a team. It was before Atlanta was a team, okay. Jacksonville. So they basically had that whole corridor was – were Redskin fans in that in that respect, and uh, and so I think that uh, when the, uh, the Redskins are traveling across the coast, that was about as far. We'd Dallas, we'd go every year, and then used to take some trains, and even with Philadelphia and New York, but the biggest one was taking a DC six out of uh, Washington uh, Reagan Airport to go to San Francisco, and then. And that was as far as one. We didn't. We did play the L.A. Rams one time. That would be a comparable uh, distance, and that was right during when they had the Watts riots. And so that was interesting because we had to go into the stadium with a police escort, but you could hear gunshots in the distance. So it made it for an interesting proposition. But those are two farther coast. Seattle wasn't in the mix at that point in time, but uh, that was it. Gotcha. Well, interesting. Yeah, not quite as as far as going to London, but still, still a little bit of a long trip from coast to coast there, uh, which is uh, which is interesting. So yeah, I, I knew they didn't play in London back when you played, but I was I was curious uh, as to what that was. Uh, Pat, let's wrap up on the Milwaukee Brewers, uh, who are currently playing on Wednesday morning when we uh, when we're chatting. Uh, I just want to fill you in. I'm not sure if you're watching, but uh, the Cincinnati Reds, who currently, as as we record, have a record of six and twenty-four, uh, are up four to zero after the first inning over the Brewers. So there you go. But I will say the Brewers in good shape. Pat, uh, the, the big news from this week: uh, Josh Hader 
getting his 500th career strikeout, the second quickest uh, ever in terms of innings pitched to get to that mark uh, behind oldest, only Araldis Chapman. So not a bad list to be a part of there for, for Josh Hader, who reached that mark on Tuesday night. Uh, he's been so good, and, and now for several years, Pat, it's been really cool to see him get to 500 strikeouts. It really is, and, and you know they've they've got they've got a number for everything. It, uh, whether it's number of strikeouts or how many innings pitched, and with men on base or whatever it is. But uh, even last night when he let the first person get on in terms of walk, you know, thing with he was you know the Reds aren't the strongest team in the world, but the, you know sometimes you have a tendency to not to slack off, but uh, just take it for granted. But you know the. Moran uh, with the Reds. I mean, he's been as tough on the Brewers as anybody could be, and uh, and so. But Josh has done a great job, and I I don't know. They, they said he was tied with Lee Smith, another for I guess getting to uh, 12 saves in a row to start the season. I don't know if that's the those are the high water marks, or he's just be passing him. But it'd be nice to see him get another one, and there's a show that heretofore the Brewers have been. Uh, not known for the badly pitching, but now with Burns and Woodruff and the, the recent past, and with the, the you know, with uh, Devon and the bullpen and uh, and Hader in the bullpen and closer, you know they're, they're starting to show that they've done a, a good eye for talent and done well. And so we'll just take as far as we can because you you never know how long you're going to have these guys. And with Hader, um, somebody would love to pick him up. But uh, as long as the Brewers are still in the mix at the end of the year, they'll keep him, and that's that's the important thing is. Is making sure that he thinks Milwaukee is a home for him, and uh, and uh, would like always they pay him accordingly. Yeah, uh, totally. And the pitching staff has really come together well, as you mentioned, and it's been uh, it's been fun to see kind of that that in house development for the most part for for a lot of those guys. So uh, it's been important to to the success the last couple of years, and it seems like they're they're growing steady and adding more arms that are that are competent, and reliable to the either the bullpen or that order every year. So. Uh, been fun to see the, the constant development there, but also the, the hitting side of things hasn't been super sexy, I would say, this year, but but two guys have really popped out to me, Pat, and th- that's uh, Willie Adamas and, and Rowdy Tellez, uh, two guys they bring back from last year. Uh, Willie leading uh, leading the team with eight home runs, Rowdy leading the team with a two forty five batting average here as we speak right now, and, and just behind Willie with, with seven home runs on the air. Uh, those are two guys that have only been a brewer, been Brewers for a few years now, but uh, certainly have been impressive, uh, at least in terms of Brewers, impressive to start this uh, to start this twenty twenty two campaign. Yeah, they are, and I think that they uh, you've got to hopefully get a couple of guys not necessarily on track, but better than what they've been, or maybe what they used to be, and in terms of uh, Yelich and uh, and Kane and. Uh, and uh, and Hero has been kind of an enigma, I think, in terms of, you know, Urias has done a, done a great job, but uh, Hero still seems to be struggling. At times he just crushed the ball, and other times he just doesn't sure he knows what he's doing up there. And so, it uh, get a couple of those guys on track, and that's a mold. Every time you're in a season like this. You're you're hoping that the guys that are kind of blossoming a little bit like uh, Damas and uh, and Tellez uh, continue to do what they're going to do, and the other guys catch up to them because they potentially have I mean, everybody in that lineup. Whether it's Taylor, whether it's Jace Peterson, uh, McCutcheon, uh, Wong, whoever it is, 
they all have the potential to be good hitters. And and when they're uh, all climbing together in terms of uh, uh, hitting, there's nobody that's going to beat these guys. But, you know, we have seen over the last couple of years, there always seems to be a lull in there somewhere where it's very difficult to get a hit. And it just doesn't happen for the guys. And that's, those are the, the dog days of uh, the Brewers. When that happens, you don't win games. And so... But I think they got more players that uh, have the potential to to pick the team up, and I think that's very important. And so Adamus, with his energy and excitement and, and uh, kind of team composure, I think has really uh, done a great job. And I think he's a guy that was identified just like they've done. They've done a great job of identifying talent, getting with him, and McCutcheon as well, and Wong. And so uh, hopefully that will continue. And uh, Everybody else is having the same problems, and so uh, it's not just one. The Bucks or the Brewers are the only team that's having a problem because everybody goes through this, and that you know, how you weather that, how you come out through that stronger in long term, is making sure you get in the playoffs, where then you can regroup and do well in the playoffs, and then have a chance to go to the series. Yeah, every year they have a they have a stretch that's disappointing. They're not quite there yet, I don't think, Pat, but uh, it, it happens every year. But overall, right, they, they, they've been controlling their own destiny, been leading the NL Central for most of the year, so they're right in it, and that's all you ask for, right? I mean, that's, uh, that, that, that's just uh, what you need, and it's a long, long season, the MLB season is. So just got to stay healthy for the most part, and uh, I'm sure they'll be back in – uh, the chase here as as we lead up to October here. Uh, still five months away, but it'll fly by as it does each year. Yeah, I mean, if you respect the getting in the playoffs and things like this, I mean, that's the main thing. And, there's, you know, if you can shorten up the the gaps in terms of when you have a losing streak and things like that. Last year we got off to a big jump and got out in front and got a big, big uh, lead on everybody, and we saw how that can dissipate real fast. And so... Don't have the luxury thus far, but hopefully they'll get on a run and stretch it out and get a, a little bit of a cushion in here because, uh, like you say, you get, need a little bit of insurance of those bad days because you know they're going to come. Everybody has them. It's just a question of how short you can make it and how successfully you can come out of it. Pat, I know you've still got your fastball, so I'll have my people talk to their people and uh, we'll, we'll work out a 10-day contract for you if, in, in case they get in a pickle again this year. There you go. Uh, we'll be we're ready. <laughs> <laughs> we're selective, but uh, I'm not sure if a 90-mile fastball is uh, something that I'm kind of just to anymore. I mean, I, we never really knew how fast they were throwing, but at 97 and 98, 99, that's pretty doggone fast. And yeah, that's true. If it's a bat, it's okay, but if it hits you in the noggin, you're kind of out of <laughs> circulation for a while. Well, worst case, Pat, I'll, I'll, I'll get you an extra Bernie Brewer suit. You can just go down the slide uh, every time a home run is hit. Maybe maybe that's it. There your... you go. That's, uh, they get a big, big, Bernie gets work out of uh, this year, <laughs> with Adamus especially. There you go. That'll do it for us this week on the Pat Richter Show. Pat, thanks as always. We'll do it again next week. Thank you, Alex. And if you missed any of our conversation, you can find it on Wisconsin Demand or wherever you get your podcast. That'll do it. This has been the Pat Richter Show on 100.5 ESPN, the ESPN app, and Wisconsin Demand.